And I'd like to ask you to keep your Bibles open tonight to Acts 1.8. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says uh, in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Then down in verse 14 and following, he says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Now, what's the common thread you see in all of those passages tonight? Missions. You are a missionary, right? You're to be a witness as we talk about foundational matters on Sunday night. One of the foundational matters we have to talk about surely is the fact that we've been given the Great Commission. It's your responsibility and it's my responsibility. I like what D. James Kennedy said on one occasion. He talked about when Jesus called the disciples. He said, follow me and I will make you to be fishers of men. And Dr. Kennedy asked a very penetrating question. He said, are you a fisher of men? Are you somewhere in the process? Are you learning? Are you trying? Are you getting out there? Are you sowing the seed? Are you being a fisher of men? And Dr. Kennedy asked his congregation, he said, if you're not, then can I ask you a question? Who are you following? Because Jesus said, follow me and I will make you to be fishers of men. I want you to think with me a minute about the world. You heard me give these statistics several years ago. They, they bear repeating. In 1996, the results of a study of 19 Christian organizations was published. And among the 19 groups was our own International Mission Board. Now they found that only 20% of the world has been evangelized. Now, by evangelized, they didn't mean that 20% were Christians. They meant that 20% had had the message of Christ presented to them in a culturally relevant way so that they could clearly understand the gospel and have the opportunity of either receiving or rejecting the message of Christ. Now, they found that 26% of the world, or 2,300 
and 47 people groups are unevangelized, meaning that they had not had a culturally clear and relevant proclamation of the gospel. They found that 24% or 4,161 people groups are unreached, meaning that there is no church movement at all sufficient enough to sustain any ongoing witness or growth. And finally, they found that 30% of the world can be classified in a group they simply called the world, making up 2,161 people groups who virtually have no access to the gospel whatsoever. Those are some staggering statistics, are they not? And what makes this so tragic, I've heard missiologists say, with, with all of the wealth of the 20th century church, the 20 and 21st century church, if we all collectively together really got down to business about funding the Great Commission, we could fund the Great Commission to take the gospel to the whole world in just one generation. One generation. If people would give. If people would give and people would go. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? It really is. Folks, I hope we realize something in all of this. We're among the 20% who have had the privilege of hearing. We're in that group. And the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. Now, let's remember that this is the last assignment Jesus gave to his church. Have you ever stood by the bedside of somebody that's about to die? Have you ever been with the family that's by the bedside of a loved one about to die when they could still communicate with the loved one? Did they communicate about just small, trivial matters? No. What did they talk about? What do they talk about? Are they ready? And what else? Heaven? Love? The most important things. The most important things. They don't, they don't chit-chat about little trivial matters, do they? They talk about the most important pressing issues as they're all there saying their final goodbyes. And folks, what we need to understand about the Great Commission, Jesus has died on the cross, he was put in the tomb, he was raised. Over 40 days he appeared to his disciples, he gave the Great Commission in, in several different places, we've just read about a few tonight, but these were the last words his last will and testament, if you will, before he ascended back to the Father, the last marching instructions that he gave to the disciples before he left them. We call it the Great Commission. It's not the great suggestion. It's not the great option. It's the Great Commission. And in that great commission, he said, you shall be my witnesses. 
Now, keep your Bibles, like I say, open to Acts 1.8. There are several things we need to understand if we're going to carry out the Great Commission and live as a missionary. Number one, we need to understand the power. The power. And folks, I, I want all of us to take these words very personally tonight because, again, this is a foundational issue in the Christian life. We're to live as a witness. Now look at verses 4 and 5. It says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now what did Jesus tell them here? They were to wait. They were not to leave Jerusalem. Why? Because the Father, the Heavenly Father, had a promise to keep, and God always keeps His promises. Now, what was the promise? The promise was that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on them. Now, once the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, they would then be able to do the assignment that He was going to give to them. When God commands us to do something, He gives the ability, He gives the power for His children to be able to do it. He doesn't command us to do something that He knows we can't do. Now, we're to fulfill the role of being a witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when he was telling them to wait for the promise of the Father, the coming Holy Spirit, now, this is not the first time in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is mentioned. The Holy Spirit's already been at work in the Bible. For instance, you can go all the way back to Genesis 1 at creation, and who is it that was moving over the face of the waters? The Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were very much involved in creation. Then he was, he was active in prophecy. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so the Holy Spirit was involved in prophecy. He was involved in the writing of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. He was active in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. In Luke 1.35 it says, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Then Luke 4, 1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And so again, Pentecost wasn't going to mark the first time that they were made aware of the Spirit's person and work. But it would mark a new chapter. Because at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come to dwell in all believers. 
That's the distinction we find between reading the two testaments, the Old and the New, right? In the Old Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit came upon special individuals for special projects. But at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to every believer. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that nobody can even be saved apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 1.13 says every believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit at the, at the moment in time that he's regenerated. It's a spiritual birth. And so under the new covenant the Spirit is given to all believers when they're saved. Now, something else about Pentecost that marked it off as a new chapter in the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was given never to be withdrawn. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to individuals like Samson and Saul, but later taken away from them. But Jesus promised his disciples, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you always. And so what Jesus is talking about here in Acts 1 and what we see taking place uh, at Pentecost in Acts 2 marks a new chapter in the ministry, in the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus wants us to understand something here. Our mission to to the world is not to be carried out in the power of human flesh. For supernatural work, we need supernatural power. Folks, you don't have to be perfect. If we had to be perfect, none of us would qualify. The Lord Jesus would have to do it all because He's the only one that's perfect. We don't have to depend upon human wisdom or human persuasion or human resources. All we have to do is depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Now some people have concluded today that being a witness for Christ is something they can't do. They think it's supposed to be something just their their pastor does or their Sunday school teacher does or their deacon does. But Jesus said that all of them would be his witnesses. In Acts chapter 4, in response to their prayer, we see that the Holy Spirit came upon all of them and they all spake the word of God with boldness. But even the apostles had to have the Spirit's enablement. Uh, Here was Simon Peter, here was James and John, John the beloved disciple. Here were all the others, but what are they being told to do here in Acts chapter 1? They are being told to first of all, wait. Now today, Christians don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. The only thing we need to do is wait before the Lord to make sure that we're poured out, that we're yielded. Right? If we're yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll be witnesses because God is a missionary God who has a missionary heart. And if He anoints us and fills us, empowers us, 
to go out and do his work, what work is that going to entail? We're going to be a witness. We're going to be a witness. A Christian who is not a witness is being disobedient. Now, we're not all called to be a pastor. We're not all called to be an evangelist. But we are all called to be a witness. Now, secondly, we need to understand the plan. Look at verses 6 to 8. It says, so when, they came, hey, they, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what is it that they wanted to know? They wanted to know if when Pentecost happened, Jesus, are you going to set up your earthly kingdom right then and there? Now, that's not an altogether bad question. But their timing was off. Uh, just as I've been telling you in the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, Romans 9 through 11 uh, plainly tells us that God is not done with the Jew yet. Uh, Romans 11 says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Jew is not going to be saved apart from Christ. The Jew will be saved the same way the Gentile is saved. Repentance of sins and faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying there in Romans 9 through 11 that there's coming a day that God is going to stir the Jew's heart to jealousy and a complete number of Israel is going to be saved. Now likewise, we're told that in the millennial reign of Christ one day, Israel will factor into that. As I made reference to this morning, and as uh, Zechariah talks about, Jesus is going to return and his feet are going to step down on the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah talks about the Mount of Olives being split in two. But here in verse 6, their timing was all messed up. They wanted to know if right then and there God was going to build this messianic kingdom and Jesus was going to sit on David's throne and Rule from Jerusalem. You see, they, they, were, uh, they were thinking he was going to build a nationalistic kingdom made up of Jews. But he's building a spiritual kingdom made up of Jews and Gentiles. And one of these days, God's going to bring everything to a close... Just as he's determined. But in verse 7, Jesus says, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You hear what he's saying to them? What's he saying to his disciples here? It's kind of like he's saying, Guys, hang on, time out. Focus in. I don't want you to get sidetracked. Until the end comes, I want you to keep in mind what 
your business is to be as the church. You let the Father worry about when He's going to wrap everything up. If you want something to worry about, you worry about how you're going to go out right now and reach the saved so that when He does wrap things up one day, there'll be more people around the throne praising God. That's what you're to be busy about. That's the business of the church. Going out and reaching a lost world and then discipling those who are reached. Don't get sidetracked. Each of our lives as a believer ought to be involved somehow or another in witnessing and discipleship. Winning the lost, building up the saved. Every one of us, in some way or another, that's what our lives are to be about. Now, what's the plan? His plan is for us to be His witnesses. Now, the great Baptist theologian, I told you a while ago about a little bit of Baptist history today, what it symbolizes, cooperative program uh, day. Well, one of our Baptist theologians, W.T. Connor, said, and I quote, Our mission is to bear witness to Christ from Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the earth, any form of Christianity that does not have throbbing through it a mighty missionary and evangelistic impulse is a degenerate form. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? J.I. Packer said, Always and everywhere the servants of Christ are under orders. To evangelize. Leighton Ford, partner in ministry to Billy Graham said, We're to evangelize not because it's pleasant, not because it's easy, not because we may be successful, but because Christ has called us. He is our Lord and He has commanded it so. We have no other choice but to obey Him. Somebody else once said, As a flame exists for burning... So the church exists for missions and evangelism. Folks, how is it that the modern day church has gotten this so wrong oftentimes? In a somewhat recent survey, this past decade anyway, of a thousand church attenders, when asked the question, why does the church exist? 89% said the church's purpose is to take care of me and my family. 89% of the thousand who were given that survey. The church's mission is to take care of me and my family. Now only 11% went on and got it right. Said the purpose of the church is to win the world for Jesus Christ. Now, does it mean we're, we, that we don't meet needs? No, sure, we meet needs, we minister to people. But what we need to see is that the church doesn't simply exist for me. We exist for others. 
We're to come to church in the words of Hebrews 10. We're to come to church looking at other believers how we might encourage and build them up. And then when we walk out the doors and go to the world, we're to have in mind a lost world. That's what the church is to be about. The church exists to win a lost world of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. I'm reminded of the pious grandmother from the United States who went to London. She went sightseeing. Westminster Abbey was next on the uh, itinerary. All of her life she had wanted to go by and visit this famous church in England uh, where so many great people who live for the Lord Jesus uh, are buried now. Now she didn't miss a thing. She looked at every stone in Poet's Corner uh, there Chaucer and Tennyson peacefully lie. She listened to the description of the, of the tombs of Elizabeth I and uh, Mary, Queen of Scots. She heard the story about the grave of the unknown warrior. Uh, after hearing so much about the church and the cemetery, she stunned the tour guide to the point that he was absolutely speechless. She said, young man, stop all of the chatter and answer me one question. Has anybody been saved in this church recently? <laughs> now, let me make three statements and I want to see if you agree with me on them. First of all, do you believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was? Do you believe that Jesus Christ did what the Bible says he did? Do you believe that heaven and hell are real places and that people can only go to heaven through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I hope you answered yes to all of those questions. If you answered yes to all of those questions, then how can we be anything but witnesses? It's incumbent upon us. Thirdly, we need to understand the progression. Look at verse 8. He, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to men who'd been tax collectors and fishermen and farmers and homemakers and businessmen. In other words, he was talking to people just like us. Not a, again, not everybody's called to be a pastor. Not everybody's called to be an evangelist or a teacher. But we are called to be a witness. Think what a witness does. A witness is not a salesman. You're not a prosecuting attorney. You're not a defense attorney. You don't, you don't have to defend God. What we are simply being called upon to do is testify of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. That's what a witness does. Witness is called to a stand in a court of law. And what's he tell about? He tells about what he has seen, what he knows. Not speculation. He doesn't get up there, well, you know, so-and-so told me that they saw such-and-such. 
He tells what he's seen, what he knows. And if we're Christian, we can do that. If nothing else, just like Dennis Nunn taught us when he was here, we can all share our personal testimony, right? If it, Now, I... Probably most anybody could sit down with the scripture, I would hope, and do, go through the Roman road. But if you don't feel like you can do that, at least you can sit down, and I can sit down with people and share a testimony. Now notice who Jesus said they needed to share with and who it's a pattern for us. I must share with those in my world. Where were the disciples in Acts chapter 1? They were in Jerusalem. That was the starting point, right where they were. D.L. Moody, I talked about him this morning. He was on a train once, happened to sit across from a young man who was just bubbling over with excitement. D.L. Moody said, where are you headed, son? He said, I'm going to be a missionary in Africa. D.L. Moody said, well, that's wonderful, son. Let me ask you another question. How many have you witnessed to at home? The young man thought, said, ooh. Well, sir, nobody. D.L. Moody said, son, you're not a missionary. You're a sightseer. <laughs> we got to start right where we are at home, right? Remember in Mark 5, the garrison demoniac that Jesus cast the demons out of, he said, Lord, I want to follow you. And the Lord said, no, I want you to go back home and tell your people the wonderful things that God has done for you. Start at home with those around you. Every single one of us right now has a circle of influence. People, people every day that we rub shoulders with, our Jerusalem, we all have that. People right around us who need Christ. And you know, to be lost in Concord is just as devastating as to be lost in Africa. Same result in the end, isn't it, if they die lost. Now, you might find people more interested, more interested than you think in hearing the gospel. A recent Gallup poll discovered that 65 million Americans have no church home. But 34 million of them said that they would attend if somebody would just invite them. 34 million Americans are waiting for an invitation to come to church. Think about that. 34 million of our fellow citizens right around us are simply waiting for somebody to invite them to come to their church. Man, talk about opportunity. Another Gallup poll said teens would rather talk about God than sex, drugs, or music. Teens would rather talk about God than sex, drugs, or music. Well, not only must I share with those in my world, I must dare to reach beyond my world. They were to go where next? Judea, 
This was their own country. They were to be concerned with those who spoke their same language. They were to be witnesses to those who had the same customs and lived in the same environment that they lived in. They were to evangelize those who lived under the same rule of government that they lived under. Now this would be their first challenge in reaching out beyond their own community, their own Jerusalem. Beloved Bible teacher John Phillips says uh, to just think about what this would do. He says, and I quote, The next venture would give them experience in following the Holy Spirit's lead in meeting strangers, in getting used to traveling, and adjusting to new situations. Home missions are just as important as foreign missions. If we're not exercised about reaching our own country, how can we be exercised about reaching somebody else's country? Folks, are we concerned about America? The only hope for America is Jesus. We've just given to the Annie Armstrong North American Missions Offering. Those funds will go into the hands of 5,000 of our missionaries who are going to go to the major cities, the North American Mission Board, trying to penetrate the lostness in America's major cities and the, and the pioneer areas of America, some places in America right now, today, that have no witness of an evangelical church in their community whatsoever. None. Listen to Dr. Willis sometime talk about when he and Dot uh, go on their campers for mission. They go out west and they might meet up with some pastor in Wyoming or somewhere out there like that. And there might be a young pastor with a small congregation of 70 or 80 and there's no other evangelical church within 100 miles of him. That's right here in America. And boy, it just seems like America's getting more lost every year, doesn't it? We're kind of following in the footsteps of Europe. You know, in England right now, in England right now, think of the, the past. So many of the great preachers that we talk about, Charles Spurgeon, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, G. Campbell Morgan, all those guys that preached over there. Uh, you look at England today, it's less than 2% Christian. And those great churches now are nothing more than basically just museums where tourists go and go through those churches. And some, some tour guide talks about what used to be there. Folks, that's what America's becoming. You know? We're closer than we think to that being the story of America. So we need to go to our Judea. Now, where's the next place they were to go to? Oh, Samaria. What would have been the problem in their minds with Samaria? They were deeply prejudiced against the Samaritans. Anybody remember your Bible history? Why they were so opposed to the Samaritans? What, what, you remember the southern kingdom went away into exile for 70 years but 
About a hundred years before that, what happened to the northern kingdom? They were displaced. Who came in? The Assyrians. Not to be confused with the Syrians, but the Assyrians. Under Tiglath, Pileser III and others who followed him, they, they came in and they utterly destroyed the ten northern tribes. God warned them and warned them and warned them of their idolatry. But remember when the kingdom split, Jeroboam took off to the northern kingdom with the ten northern tribes and he set up, of all things, he set up two different places where they could worship golden calves. That sounds like back during the days of Exodus, right? How Aaron, the, the golden calf, and how that displeased God. Jeroboam led the, seven, um, the ten northern kingdoms to do that same thing. From, from then on in the northern kingdom, they were filled with idolatry. And God said, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you. God finally did. When God wiped out the ten northern tribes, the Assyrians killed a bunch of them, deported a lot of them. What the Assyrians did was bring in foreigners to the northern kingdom. And, and things were arranged. These, these foreigners would intermarry with the Jews who were left behind there. And so their religious practice became very syncretistic. And they even set up their own temple up there at Samaria. They were half-breeds. They were so despised that if you were in Jerusalem and you look at a map of the Holy Land and, and you're in Jerusalem and you're going to go right up here to the Sea of Galilee to go right up, you'd have to go through Samaria. Well, they didn't want to do that and so they would go eastward and they would cross over the Jordan River, go up the the eastern side of the Jordan River and then cross over back westward and go in to Galilee that direction. They didn't even want to go through Samaria. They didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. You remember in John's Gospel, Jesus said, I must go through Samaria. And here he says, go to the Samaritans, go to Samaria. That'd be like the Lord asking you tonight. Is there a people group or is there somebody that you just quite frankly don't want anything to do with? Is there any nationality, any people group, any, anybody, anywhere that you're deeply prejudiced against? Take the gospel to them. Love them because Jesus loves them. Amen? Go to the people that you least want to go to. Go to your neighbors, go to your country, go to those you least want to go to. And then thirdly, I must care about the whole world. What do you say lastly? Go where? To the ends of the earth. Now folks, think about them back then how difficult that was. But you know, in the morning you can get on a plane and you can be halfway around the world by supper time tomorrow night. You know? 
And then we have the internet. I mean, think, think about this 120 that he's talking to here in Acts 1. Going to the end of the earth, I mean, that's going to be a major endeavor for them, right? But they were still to do it. Much easier for us today. Now, there's different kinds of evangelism. There's relational evangelism. In John 1, you find a great example of this. Andrew went to his brother, Simon Peter, invited Simon Peter to meet Jesus. Philip went to his friend, Nathaniel. Then there's situational evangelism. God will bring people across our path or take our path across somebody else. God sent Philip out into the desert to meet up with the Ethiopian eunuch and tell him about Jesus. And then there's confrontational evangelism. Acts 26, Paul before Agrippa. So there's relational evangelism, situational evangelism, confrontational evangelism. We could add two more to that. We could say there's mass evangelism. That's what Billy Graham has done all these years in big coliseums. Then personal evangelism when you go and knock on somebody's door. All of those are needed. All of them. I want you to listen to the following true story from a pastor out of Georgia. Kind of, it's kind of lengthy. He said, and I quote, In 1992 I had the privilege of going to the former Soviet Union on a mission trip. We flew to Moscow and got on a train for a 16-hour ride to Kiev in the Ukraine. The next day, we traveled by car to the city of uh, Jag Jagaton, I guess is the way it's pronounced. It was the first time this city of about 20,000 had ever had a Christian missions team to visit with them. We went to the schools and the reception was incredible. I've never seen such hunger for the gospel in my life. We ministered in the schools and walked all over town inviting people to come see the Jesus film in the high school that night. The film was in the Russian language. Though they knew nothing about Christ, they were enraptured with this film on the life of Christ. When the crucifixion was depicted on the screen, you could hear the weeping and the sobbing. We had a Ukrainian pastor with us who during the communist regime had been leading an underground church. He came back to me and said, These people are weeping and confessing their sins. Let's stop the film. The sense of God's presence and His power and His holiness was so great that no one could do anything but confess sins. After about 30 minutes, the crew turned the movie back on so that the people could know the end of the story. You know the end. It does not end in death on a cross, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the townspeople saw how the story ended, they exploded as if a dam had burst. Everyone began cheering and dancing and hugging one another and jumping up and down and celebrating when the invitation was given for people to accept Christ. Nearly everybody in the crowd wanted to respond. You talk about joy, you talk about satisfaction, you talk about celebration. I don't know that I had ever experienced anything like it before, nor have I experienced anything like it since. Wow. 
Folks, you and I need to remember that we were made for a mission. A mission. You're a missionary. You're a missionary. Let's not be like the following young man. A young man applied for a job at a theater. The manager said, son, let me ask you a question. Suppose the theater is packed with people and a fire breaks out. What are you going to do? The young man said, sir, you don't have to worry about me. I'll get out. (laughs) It's not enough for us to get out. Who's going to get out with us? Remember what Ezekiel was told? I've appointed you a watchman over the house of Israel. If somebody dies in their sin and you've not warned them, they'll still die. But I'm going to hold you accountable. Their blood's going to be on your hands. But if you warn them and they still don't repent, they'll die. But their blood won't be. On your hands. The church is like the watchman of Ezekiel, right? We're like the watchman. You're a witness. You're a missionary. You're an ambassador for Christ. It is your job. It is my job. It's our assignment. It's our commission. Again, it's not the great suggestion or the great option. It's the great commission. And it's a matter of obedience. Am I going to be obedient? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just a very foundational lesson in the scripture tonight about our job description as the church. And Lord, this week, every one of us will have an opportunity to put this into practice. This is not a lesson that we can go home tonight, just sit on the shelf and say, oh, that was nice, and do nothing with it. Because this week, We will cross paths with people who need a witness. And you've called us to be witnesses. Lord, it's not that we don't have the opportunity. It's whether or not we'll be obedient or not. Give us strength and boldness and courage. Lord, help us not to worry at all about what people will think about us. That doesn't matter. Lord, what matters is what do they think about you. Help us to joyfully accept our ministry description and to be witnesses. Lord, help us not to worry about being perfect. Sometimes we'll we'll say things maybe not quite as well as we could have said them when we think back on it. But Lord, help us just to be faithful in sharing. May we be concerned about being yielded to you and then you'll use us even in our 
weakness. So Lord, I pray for each one of us in here tonight, myself included. May we look at the lost world the way you look at the lost world. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we don't, con- we don't consider men anymore simply according to the flesh. But we look at them considering their relationship to Jesus Christ. Do they know Christ? May we look at people that way. May we see people the way you see people. Lord, give us your heart, your eyes, your ears, your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.